everyone, and welcome to Functional Pathways, Pathways to Success. I am pleased and excited to be joined today by Cynthia Morton, EVP at Avion, formerly Nasal. And we're going to have a little chat today about all things advocacy and everything that's happening in Washington and ways that you can get involved in healthcare advocacy. So welcome, Cynthia. Thank you, Karen. Glad to be here. So what is Avion? Sure. Uh, Avion is a, is a newish name for this organization. And previously, as you mentioned, we were NASL, National Association for the Support of Long-Term Care. Advion is essentially a made up word. It's, it's a mashup of two words, advocate and champion. Advocate and champion mashed up together, Advion. And that name recognizes uh, the advancements really that the members of this organization have made. They've, they are in more than skilled nursing facility settings. They're all along the long-term care con uh, continuum, much more than just long-term care. And so the name Advion really recognizes that as well as our key strengths as an organization, advocacy. What's your role at Avion? I know you've been there for quite a while. What, what do you, what's your responsibility? Sure, um, as you noted, my title is uh, executive vice president, but I'm really the key strategist, uh, kind of wear a lot of hats too. I'm the key strategist, I'm the key lobbyist, for the association. Um, I also kind of the key evangelist uh, for the organization, but the members really carry the message. But I do a little bit of everything. I plan our two conferences. Uh, I help determine our positions on various pieces of legislation. Uh, I speak for the organization with, with the media. I talk to McKnight's and skilled nursing news quite often. And I'm also always trying to um, you know, look for more companies to join Avion. So I think when, and I'm being a participant in Advion and a member and those kind of things, it's always amazing to me the things that are out there from a legislative perspective. But I'm not sure that everyday lay therapists really understand what policies are out there and, and what legislation really means for healthcare. You know, we go to work, we treat our patients, we come home, and we don't necessarily understand where all of that fits into our everyday world. So can you talk a little bit about how that legislation and all the policies really affect us as therapists or healthcare providers? Sure. And, and this is something I really like to talk about because I like to connect the dots between you know, the, the struggles, the challenges, the opportunities that therapists face every day um, in, in treating their patients, you know, shortages of reimbursement or challenges with working with a Medicare Advantage plan or just maybe regular fee-for-service challenges or just why is this, from their point of view, just why is this kind of feels like a boneheaded uh, policy? Why is it that way? And I like to trace the steps from the particular policy and why it might seem so strange, I like to trace the steps backward to CMS that sets the policy. But CMS doesn't act on their own. It's CMS is part of the executive branch and it's the legislative branch, the Congress, that passes the laws that tells the legislative branch, okay, here's the law and the executive branch has to carry out that law. So almost all policies that we end up with, you know, at the bedside originated with CMS, both 
coming from being passed through a law. And then there's some policies that CMS has authority on their own to create. It didn't have to come directly from a law. But I like connecting those dots because when you see the, the trail or the, the trail of breadcrumbs, I guess you could say, I'm using a couple of metaphors here. If you can see the trail between a policy you either agree or maybe disagree with and see that trail all the way up to Congress, then I think that empowers you or it, it brings some energy into um, advocacy and knowing that you can go talk to a member of Congress or their staff and try to have impact on policies going forward. So what does that conversation look like? I know one of the things we had talked about when we discussed the questions for this podcast was a Hill visit and what that looks like. And I've been on a few and I know the first couple ones I went on, I was a little nervous because you're not quite sure what to expect, especially if you've never been to the Hill or you've never been to a legislator's office or a senator's office and it can be a little overwhelming. So what does that kind of look like and any recommendations for future Hill visits for anybody that might be listening that that may have the opportunity to do that? Sure. Um, I really recommend anyone and almost everyone um, try and experience a Hill visit. It's, it's kind of part of our responsibility really to our patients to try and impact policy for the better. But what exactly is a Hill visit? So that's kind of short for a Capitol Hill visit. And as everyone knows, Congress is on Capitol Hill in Washington, DC. So we kind of use that, that phrase, Hill visit. Uh, prior to COVID, uh, almost every Hill visit was in person. You would go down to Capitol Hill, you would have an appointment, just stopping by um, unannounced isn't isn't always uh, helpful because these uh, staffers are very, very busy. They are doing Hill visits almost all day. And when they aren't meeting with constituents in a, in a visit, in a me- Hill meeting, they are likely answering emails. They might have a responsibility in their office to answer a certain type of constituent letter that has come in, you know, develop a, a, an answer for those letters or they're having meetings with other um, members of Congress's staff or members trying to maybe get others to join on to their their boss's uh, bill. So they're very, very busy. So you go in and you, you've got an appointment. Uh, generally, when Advion does our Hill visits, we, as you noted, we send people in a group. Uh, it's, it's much easier to go in a group of maybe two or three, maybe four people than going on your own. Um, it's not as nervous when you're in a group and you simply put the issue, your issues on the table. Generally in a Hill meeting, um, you've organized ahead of time what particular message you want to carry to that member of Congress. Now you may say, eh, you wanna meet with the member of Congress, who are these staff anyway? But members of Congress are dealing with so many issues at one time that they really empower and rely on their staff um, to handle their position on several issues. The staffer we might be meeting with has responsibility for all of healthcare. <laughs> so that's, you know, like all the federal programs plus, you know, private commercial insurance, all settings, all of healthcare. They might have maybe postal issues and maybe VA issues, Veterans Administration issues in their portfolio. So they, you know, we're just thinking about long-term post-acute care. We just think of they're dealing with all of healthcare and then a couple other things. And as they become more senior in their office, they can specialize. So they've got so much going on and so much clouding their mind, you know, that we have to kind of cut through that with our simple message in that meeting. You want to deliver that message quickly. Uh, And then you want to have a couple of backup points. 
and you're conveying all of this verbally, but you also provide what we call an issue brief. That's kind of a tool of the trade. An issue brief also can be called a one pager. It can maybe um, become two pages rather than one, but the point is that it's a short, simple piece of paper, and it can be electronic these days, that further reinforces your message and might provide a little more detail than you really could get to in your meeting. Your meeting only lasts about 20 minutes because uh, they're going to do another one. They're going to have, as I said, multiple of those during the day. And then you exchange business cards. After that meeting, you get a chance to send an email to follow up. Now, all of these meetings, Karen, don't have to occur in Washington, D.C. Members of Congress, as you know, have their district offices. They may have two, three, four, maybe five offices in a, their district, you know, in different cities or towns, counties uh, in their part of the state. You can have a Hill visit in the district office with a staffer. In fact, it can be sometimes more effective because that district staffer is not likely meeting with constituent after constituent after constituent, has a little more time to listen to your issue. You might even be able, Karen, to invite that um, staffer and their boss, the member of Congress, to come uh, tour a facility where you might be providing the therapy and you would work with the, that nursing facility or, or other entity where you are. And it could be a real win-win across the board. So that's kind of a view into what a Hill visit is. Um, and it's, it's really a way of starting kind of a relationship with that staffer. Um, they may even reveal to you, Karen, that their grandmother was in a nursing facility or their mother received PT or OT. And then, wow, you can kind of capitalize on that and say, oh, well, you know, I'm an OT. I understand that. And you've built a little bit of rapport there with someone. And it's going to make your follow-up email to them when you're really asking them to maybe get on, you know, support a bill that you're pushing. It makes that even uh, better. And you may even get them on the bill. Thanks, Cynthia. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So can you give an example of one particular topic or item that's kind of a hot topic right now that that would be involved in that Hill visit or what we're I, I know, obviously, because I'm I'm on all the Advion emails and, and committees and all those kind of things. But what's one big thing right now that is really being pushed from Advion to the Hill? Sure. I'd love to talk about this. Uh, let's talk about Part B, the fee screen, the physician fee schedule. We've been seeing um, significant cuts, 3 and 4%, to the CPT codes that you bill over the last three years. And it's, I won't go into it in too much detail, but the reason, you know, every year we get a little bit of up and down on the, on the CPT codes, but this three and 4% was obviously more significant. Why? Um, in the last year, the previous administration, and it had nothing to do with, with who was president, CMS came out with an initiative to put more money, more value of the physician fee schedule into primary care. Now, the physician fee schedule, it's about a $20 billion spend for Medicare. And here's my metaphors again. It's like a pie. And when they made primary care's slice of the pie, their CPT codes about, they gave their, their part of the $20 billion, they raised it about 30 to 40%. That made everybody else's slice of the CPT code pie smaller, including therapy. So, 
it's it, they call it budget neutral. If CMS is going to put more money into another part of the fee schedule, everybody else gives a little to help pay. Now, this happens every year, but it was significant because um, of so much money that CMS moved from the rest of us over to primary care. They wanted to put more emphasis on primary care and nothing, nothing against primary care, but it's the mechanics of that fee schedule that caused all of us other providers under the fee schedule, including therapy, to sustain a cut to pay for that um, increase um, to our primary care physicians. And it's happening, you know, it's, it wasn't a one-year deal. CMS is uh, doing this every year. And so the rest of the providers that be, bill under the fee schedule, we mobilized. And we advocated in Congress. We mobilized our associations and our members, like we're talking here. And we were able to get uh, Congress to kind of backfill some of that cut the first year. They backfilled at what, about 3.75%. Right. Then the next year, Congress helped again. And then the third year, that would have been for this year, Congress did help again. And each year they've been helping in lesser and lesser amounts. When they helped for 2023, they also gave us a little bit of help for 2024, kind of like PS, don't come back. You know, <laughs> we're already covering you, but we're saying PS, it wasn't enough, right? Because they only gave us about 1.25%. And we're facing another about three, three and a half percent cut on the fee schedule. So I know this is a lot of numbers, but I'm trying to tie exactly where the source is for these cuts we're seeing and these challenges we're seeing in the CPT code, because um, that's real. That's real stuff for the services you're providing every day. Right. And it's a cutting back. Um, and so we've got a voice and we've got to use that voice with Congress to tell them no. The 1.25%, we're happy, we're so grateful for it, Congress, but it's not enough. And timing is right, right now, Karen, as they come back from their August uh, recesses where they work in the district, they really get down to business in September because there's not a lot of time between September, October, November. Uh, they want to get things done before Christmas. And, you know, we often see that last health care bill in December. Sometimes it's passed like Christmas Eve because Congress only deals with deadlines say a major holiday, that's the way it could work this year. But it's going to be an uphill battle to convince Congress, yeah, you already gave us a little bit, but we need more. Because asking Congress to act twice on something is really hard. So it's going to take emails, it's going to take Hill visits, it's going to take a really loud voice from our sector. So what's the message, Cynthia, around why we need more? You know, we, we keep saying more and more and more, but what's the rationale behind that as far as the messaging of, okay, we know that you've taken away, taken away. The last three years, you've helped out a little bit. Uh, why do we need more? Uh, you know, we need more because we've actually been losing what we had, uh, but we know therapy works. We know rehab therapy. We know rehab therapy works. We know rehab therapy is a... Uh, a in certain circumstances, a wonderful alternative to say opioids. It can be a low cost procedure. Um, it can stave away bigger, bigger problems. And I'm probably missing so many other things that so many other benefits of rehab therapy. But that 26 year old staffer and Capitol Hill is made up of very young people because you need people to work a lot of hours for low, low pay. So it's, it's really a young person's game over there is what I call it. 
we need to convince that 26-year-old staffer who maybe doesn't even know what therapy is that, yeah, we need help. We in the, in the rehab therapy sector, we need help for our patients um, because they're getting bombarded by every other healthcare um, provider type or setting. They're getting competition. The hospitals want help. You know, the VA wants help. All, you know, all kinds of other. There's a lot of competition for scarce dollars on Capitol Hill. So everybody have, has their hands out, right? Everybody <laughs> has their hands out. And it's our, it's our constitutional right, right? Um, and so that's why we got to get on up there, because if we're not up there, someone else is getting the few dollars. And so we've got to make our case about why therapy benefits our patients so much that we need to like keep being made whole or we need to stave off these CPT code cuts, whatever the, the technical message is there. It's really at the end of the day, it's so that we can continue treating the patients appropriately and get them better faster and get them home. Well, and I, I agree with your with your thought process on the on the staffers, and definitely they are younger. I was surprised the last time I was up on the hill. I thought, wow, I either I'm really really old or they're they're really young, and I don't think I'm really really old. Uh, but it was interesting in the conversation that that the group that I was with had with the staffer had no idea. I think we make assumptions that they know everything that's happening in the sector that you happen to be addressing, but we were talking about information technology and they had no idea that the nursing home sector didn't get a, an incentive to have the health information flow. So, and, and have all that information technology um, budget to be able to up our game. Uh, and they had, so they had no idea and the light bulb, you could see the light bulb go on. So I think, my message to people when they are first going on the Hill visit is don't make assumptions that they know and make sure that you're hitting that point home. That's a very good point. Don't assume. And, uh, you know, that that particular staffer, and I I don't want to keep hitting on their age, but it is, as I said, a very young young group. It's a fact. And they maybe have only been in their job maybe three, four years. So they were not around, Karen, you know, when you're referencing the High Tech Act. I forgot what year that was, but that was a good like eight or nine, maybe a 10 long time years ago. ago right? <laughs> yeah, so you know they might have still been in college or maybe not. We'll just say not in this role, right? So they didn't even remember who did and didn't get, um, and that's where that issue brief comes in handy. And also your ability in that hill visit um, to present to them that you are the expert on this particular issue, and so they can rely on you. So they don't have to look up a question that they, you know, look up the answer to a question. They could zip you an email and you can have this nice email relationship uh, with that staffer. And then the next year when you go in to see them in person, it's like, hi, how are you? And your your message is going to be elevated a little bit because you've got some credibility with them because you formed a rapport, formed a relationship. And it, it only takes a couple emails a year. This is not a, not a monthly thing. Um, they just need to hear from you periodically and it can go a long way. A long way. And certainly making it personal is very important. I think we see, I get a lot of emails from, from different advocacy groups saying, hey, send a letter to your legislator, your senator, your representative, whoever, and they send you this canned template, which is all well and good, especially if you don't yes. know where to start. But can you talk a little bit about why it's so important maybe to personalize and, and make some recommendations around what 
a, a frontline therapist or a frontline CNA or whoever is out there on the front lines can do to those letters to really make them hit home? You bet. Um, we we produce those letters as well, uh, and we have them on our website. And it's not just for therapists to send. It, it can be family members. It can be strangers. It can be anybody. Uh, I get that, my neighbors involved. I send it out to yeah. all my neighbors, and my whole entire family gets them. I tell them what to say, how to personalize it. So, yeah. Absolutely. And personalizing it, that's the key there, Karen. Uh, the way we set up our letters is that uh, the, the person sending it can alter it. They can edit it. You can put in, a, you know, we couldn't create, um, you know, a, an individual story for every letter. I, I don't know that many patients, right? Uh, so that's why we have our setting. We have it set so that the person sending it can personalize it, put in a maybe a note about a patient. Of course, we wouldn't use their real name, of course. But, you know, talk a little bit about who you treat. It puts the patient face on that communication. And we make it very easy. You don't even have to know who your member of Congress is. If you know your zip code, which I think everybody does, you put in your zip code. And our we have a little widget that act, um, automatically um, pulls up who your member of Congress is. It pre-addresses the email and it gives you a nice set, as you mentioned, a canned message, but that you can alter. And it tells you, look, you can edit this uh, if you wish. Because, um, you know, we want it to be easy. We want it to be quick. Uh, but we want to do give you that opportunity to put a, the patient face uh, in the letter because at the end of the day, that's who it's about. Sure, I've been talking about provider this, provider that, but it's really about the patients that we're treating. They're the Medicare beneficiaries. They earn this benefit, right? They paid into Medicare all those years. It's their care, and they really um, are due every bit of that benefit. So we want to do our best to be sure they get it. And advocating for our patients is a big part of that. And this this political advocacy, this this grassroots advocacy, we call it, um, is a piece of that as well. And I think you have some people out there that are that are, that say, I don't want to get involved in politics. I'm not yeah. I'm not a politics person. What do you say to somebody that says that in, in regards to advocacy? You know, I understand that. Um, I happen to love politics myself, uh, but I, I do hear that, and I, I understand that, especially today as things become more polarized, and I guess that's why I go back to, in my talks, I like to, as I mentioned earlier, have that thread, that trail between what we do every day, which is our profession, our vocation, our passion, our love, treating patients, but you can't treat the patient in case, unless you know you get reimbursed for it adequately. And I like to, to have the thread between that all the way to CMS or Congress, whoever's pulling the levers on that particular policy. Because to me, that's what makes it real. And it, it strips away a bit of the politics because it's really about me getting my patient what they are due or what's the best for them or whatever that right thing is. It's me and my patient. But I've got a responsibility here. I'm a part of that chain because I can be a voice in that thread and that chain and that trail. Um, and I can I can. It's another way of advocating for your patient, really. So I, I kind of tie those together. It can be a long chain sometimes, uh, but I like to do that in talks to really make it real. Why that advocacy is it's 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 yeah, it's part of politics, but it, it can be a little separate from politics, too. 
How does a regular everyday therapist or healthcare worker or neighbor or family member get involved in advocacy? Where do you start? Because like you said, you can't just walk up to the hill and knock on knock on Marsha Blackburn's door and say, hey, let's chat about healthcare for a minute. <laughs> That's right. Even though she, Senator Blackburn's a great lady and uh, she's been uh, always very active on uh, long term. Yes. I live in Tennessee, care. so I'm, I'm yeah. I've met her numerous times and what a great advocate for us, for sure. Yes, for sure. Yeah, I put a lot of emphasis in this talk, Karen, on the Hill visit, but you don't have to go to Capitol Hill. You know, we've been talking about these emails. We were just talking about how uh, the Advion um, website has a little widget. It's a little part of our website where you, it's called legislative advocacy and you pump in your, your uh, zip code and it generates a letter for you that you can just alter a little if you want, don't have to, press send and it's on its way. It takes three minutes or less. Um, also APTA, AOTA, ASHA, all three have the same kind of mechanism on their website. And I'm pretty sure, 99.9% .9 sure, you do not have to be a member of those organizations to send that email. You can do that email once a year, wish you'd do it more, uh, but you can do it once a year, you could do it once a, once a month, Oftentimes, you know, like when do you do it? Oftentimes, Advion and other organizations, like the ones I just mentioned, we have campaigns, which means we, as you know, the, the professional kind of watching Congress, we know when a particular issue is becoming ripe. Like I was mentioning, that physician fee schedule issue, it's going to really gear up when they get back in sep uh, September, which is just around the corner. So you'll be seeing campaigns or emails going out to organizations, therapists, calling upon them, calling them to action to send this email because we've now said, hey, the time is right. Members of Congress are open to this. We've got a bill introduced. We're trying to get more sponsors on that bill to show that there's broad support for it so that the leaders will pay attention to that bill and maybe stick it into that last big bill at the end of the year. So we tell you when the time is right. If you see one of those emails, act then. You can act right that moment. Um, maybe not wait a week, um, but generally in our campaigns, we kind of tell you, hey, it's urgent. You got you to respond this week or in the next three weeks, whatever it is. And you might see multiples of those. You know, we might have a big push in September and then there's a little bit of a lull. And then as the issues heat up and we see that the committees are going to deal with our uh, physician fee schedule issue or not. And so we need to put, tell them, wait, you got to deal with it. We might ramp that back up in November. So look to us to kind of help you with timing, but we just wish everyone would step up and just send at least one email because it can really make a difference. You know, people ask me, are the emails read? They are. They are read by, um, there's a group in every office that is reading the constituent mail because at the end of the day, the member of Congress is accountable to their voters who are either going to vote them in or vote them out, you know, when re-election time comes. They, members of Congress don't mind hearing from people like me, a professional lobbyist, but they really want to hear from you because you vote in their district. I don't. Um, so they're reading your letters every day. They may um, bundle, let's say they get a lot of letters on or emails, I'm using it interchangeably, a lot of emails on the physician fee schedule. OK, they're going to bundle all those together. They're going to count them 
and they're going to tell their boss, hey, we got 100 emails this week on the physician fee schedule. We got 50 emails this week on some VA issue. We had five on this education issue. And the whole office examines that. They may not look at every email. They may look at a sample of them, provide a sample of them to the member of Congress so she or he can see those, but they look at the counts. So they are looking to see what are their voters telling them they want to see action on. So it, it really does count. Yeah, and I know I get that question a lot too. Well, why would I send this letter? They're probably not even going to read it. Don't they get thousands and thousands and thousands of every day? But that's their job is to make sure that they're in touch with what we're wanting out here in their districts and, and in their states to make sure that all of the items, even outside of healthcare, because like you said, it's more than just healthcare. It's everything we do in this country, right, that they're dealing with. So certainly having Advion um, as a partner to help guide us in what topic we need to be addressing right now is very important. So what would you say would be the top three or five three, four or five items that are on the hot list right now for Advion. Sure. Physician's um, fee schedule for sure. Fee schedule for sure. Um, that is very important and that's being teed up uh, for Congress as we speak. We've got a bill introduced uh, that would, it would bring an inflationary update to the physician fee schedule. Um, in theory, it's a wonder, it's a fix. It's a wonderful fix. Uh, in practical terms, it's it's going to be a little tough because it, it will have to be um, scored, as they say, which means there's another little agency that examines the bill and forecasts how much that particular bill or might cost the federal government going forward. Because members of Congress need to know what a piece of legislation may cost as they deliberate on it. And if, if we add this inflationary update, which we know is needed, it could add, you know, like it could even maybe another $10 billion and um, that could be problematic. So we may not have the perfect fix yet, but that's my job. We're working on that here. We will need to turn on these emails, which we call the grassroots um, in some weeks here. So that physician fee schedule is very, very big. Another issue that's really hot, it's not in Congress at the moment. It's with the administration, it's with HHS and CMS. And that's the minimum nurse staffing policy that you've been hearing about. Uh, we thought that would have come out in the spring. Certainly the administration had set themselves up for putting it, releasing it in the spring as a proposed rule, but then the spring came and gone. And now the summer is coming and going. And what we're seeing now as we monitor this is there's um, a little office, it's a piece of the White House, it's where regulations go to be reviewed before they're released to the public. And it's that office that is holding some meetings with stakeholder groups regarding this nurse staffing policy. Um, and so we see that they have to put it on their website. So we see there's some meetings scheduled even into September. And that's what's leading to these media reports you might be reading that says we may not see the policy till September. Nobody really knows what's in it. I've seen articles that kind of people think they know what's in it. The administration has kept it pretty tight. So we really don't know um, what kind of policy CMS will come out with, but it's gonna be controversial. And I'm linking it to Congress somewhat because the nursing home uh, uh, advocacy groups have really been 
finding champions and support in Congress, trying to get members of Congress to tell CMS, hey, slow down on that, or you need to pay for any policy that you come out with. So there's been a lot of engagement with Congress, although they don't have any say on it at this moment. CMS is really undertaking this regulation under their their regular authority. But that's going to be a big issue once that regulation is released here, uh, perhaps in September. Yeah, there's been a lot of lot of um, articles, and Mark Parkinson at AHCA has been very vocal about it, which has been great. I think he's been very well spoken, as as yes. has Advion and and everyone else. But yeah, it's a it's a scary proposition, depending which way they go with it. Do you have thoughts about where they may head with it? You know, I think uh, I feel like they're realists over there, and they see the nursing shortage. You can't miss it. So they want a policy, I believe, they want a policy that works for everyone, that can improve quality, that can improve staffing. But requiring, you know, you can't, what you, you know, can't nail a round peg into a square hole or whatever it is. What, what we think they might be thinking of is not going to work. So I think they're trying to figure out a way to make it workable. Maybe it's a phase in, you know, really don't know. But I, I think they're trying to make it workable. I'll they just have to figure out the workforce issue for sure. They sure do. And that's, you know, and that, that's a big deal. Is a, it is a big deal, Karen. It doesn't get solved overnight, right? It, is a lot, right? it takes a lot of time. And I'm concerned that Congress is not really passing legislation to help the workforce. There's not a lot of talk about it in Congress. And so that's an issue we're raising as well. I'm going to throw one more in there, telehealth. Um, we had a very, we had a big win uh, this spring and early summer. CMS had come out uh, a couple months ago with a position that was opposite than what everybody in our sector understood. And their position was, oh no, therapists that utilize telehealth in nursing facilities are not going to be able to continue that ability uh, past the end of the PAG or maybe 151 days after the PAG ends. And Advion and all the other therapy organizations said, oh, wait a minute. No, no, no. Congress passed a law allowing it. So we had a kind of a involved process with CMS. And thankfully, they completely turned um, their opinion around and they clarified it in an FAQ. And then they further formally clarified it in that fee schedule that just came out. So that that's a huge win for preserving access to patients for those that want to use telehealth. So I'm going to change gears just a little bit and talk a little bit about transparency and uh, the transparency of CMS, whether it's around reimbursement, quality measures, where we're heading with G, G, G. Quality measures is the one that's kind of hanging out there in my mind, especially as involved as we are with, with QMs from a therapy perspective. I actually have a little bet out there that it probably won't come out until September 30th the uh, technical user's manual. Um, but sometimes it seems like like even finding Medicare rates and those kind of things and the transparency around that. Do you what is your thought around transparency for CMS and how visible they are about different numbers and metrics and those kind of things, um, reimbursement, and do you see any improvement in that on the horizon? I know at the last uh, Advion meeting, one of the questions to John Kane was about that transparency and when is that going to improve? 
Yes, I, I think they're trying. Um, you know, I envision, I've, I've been to the CMS building a number of times. It's just outside Baltimore. It's a huge building. I don't know how many employees they have, but I, I bet they have like 6,000, maybe seven. I don't know. You know, imagine a huge bureaucracy. And it's, it's a short period of time between the olden days when you might have a group, a data group in a, in a, in a big federal agency that controlled the data. And it was kind of hard to get that data. But it's been a short time between that kind of scenario and like today, when we talk about data all day long, I need data, I need this, I need that. Um, but how do you move those big silos of data in a federal uh, agency into a more workable way for the employees to access? And then how do you move it to release it to the public? I'll give CMS a little bit of credit. They've been releasing those public use files. I call it the puff data for, for fun. <laughs> uh, they've been releasing that maybe eight years or so now. It's a little clunky. It's a little hard. It's hard for laymen, you know, like me. Uh, it's easier for these consultants and companies like yours that have mechanisms to really deal with that data. Um, but we're getting there. And I think they do feel the pressure to release more and more. I'll give you an example. Um, the move from keys to iKeys. Now that's not gonna exactly involve releasing data to the public or, or even you know, providers, but it's a more modern move on CMS's part to have that data repository. It's really data coming in from the field, right? Your MDS reports, have that on a more modern platform that will allow CMS better opportunity in the future to share. Um, so I guess I'm a little bit on the CMS side, but it really can't come fast enough, you know. But we also need, um, we need it to be released smartly, you know, with better explanations. Sometimes there can be three or four places to find data on the CMS website, which can be confusing to the public. Um, I think things will get better and better as time goes by, but it, it's a little slow. I'll admit, but I think they want to be more transparent. It's it's moving, I'll call it silos, moving big mountains, you know, within a big federal agency. Yeah, definitely a big, big ship to turn. Yes. When we talk about sharing data and certainly in the long term care world and the SNF world, it's not like we're we're high tech. Uh, we're getting yeah. there. We're certainly improving uh, year over year and and decade over decade, but we still have a little ways to go as well. So agreed. So any final, I, I so greatly appreciate your time today, Cynthia, any final thoughts for our listeners about how to get involved with advocacy? You said you mentioned um, APTA, AOTA, ASHA, uh, those obviously Avion. How do you get involved in Avion? If you're not a member, how do you get involved? Sure. Uh, we're welcome, really, all companies. We're, we're an association. I, I didn't mention kind of what we are. We're what's called a trade association. What does that mean? It's, it's a, we're a nonprofit adv advocacy organization, and companies pay dues to us, and then we advocate on behalf of those companies. Similar to an APTA, AOTA, or ASHA, they are nonprofit organizations advocacy organizations, professional organizations, but they have individual members paying dues to them. And then they advocate uh, for those for those members. And we work with them every day. We have a weekly call in this greater therapy coalition and we work uh, cooperatively because uh, it's strength in numbers when it comes to CMS and Capitol Hill. I would say, you know, 
anyone, everyone can be involved. You know, how do you be involved? It's as simple as when you see an email or maybe you see a, a, a poster on a wall that allows you to scan it with your phone that gives you a link to be involved, send that email when you're asked to send that email. It's really not hard. You're not gonna trigger a bunch of, you know, emails from that member of Congress. You'll get a response. You should get a response. But you can just do that even once a year and, and that when the issues come up and, and that makes a huge difference. Of course, I'd love you to do, do more than that. Um, I'd love for you to be active within your, within your company. Uh, if your company brings, say, a group to, to uh, Washington, D.C. at our March conference, come with, do the Hill visit uh, or help to organize a, a visit with the district staff. Maybe you're really charged up and you're thinking, you know what? Where I work here would be perfect to give a tour to that member of Congress. They're looking for things to do, you know, because maybe the media takes a picture. Um, and so they get a, some positive press visiting a nursing home, for example, shaking some hands there. Um, wouldn't it be great to get them in the therapy gym, you know, <laughs> uh, and really help them understand what this really means, you know, it's not just words on the paper. So there's different ways, you know, to be involved, either just involved a little bit or, or more so, but everyone can do it. And I really encourage everyone to, it's our responsibility because if we're not telling Congress or CMS what we need, all our competition, <laughs> you know, is up there and they're going to get the attention. They're going to get the funding. We're not, we're, we're going to get nothing. And it's hard to, you know, move forward with nothing. Uh, so that's why it's really, really important for all of us to be involved. I did have one final thought and question actually related to managed care. And I know there's some a lot of, of press out there right now around CMS's scrutiny of managed care. What are your thoughts and take on that? And what do you think the end or you know the next steps will be in some accountability for managed care? Because I think that's been our frustration, especially those of us that have been working strictly with the, the Medicare and seeing the influx of Medicare replacement policies, especially coming into the environment and authorization processes and shorter length of stays, but not necessarily as great outcomes. What are you seeing and what do you think is going to come down the pike from CMS in accountability for them? Sure, I'm glad you asked that. Um, we're seeing more calls for accountability with managed care plans. It came to a real head uh, last year. There was a huge bill, huge piece of legislation around um, Medicare Advantage and prior authorization and putting more controls on how MA plans do their prior authorization. That bill had 309 mem uh, members of the House uh, co-sponsor it. And there's only there's 435 members of the House. I don't think I could tell you another bill that has 309 co-sponsors on it. And everyone thought, boy, that bill, that bill's gonna sail through Congress and very few bills do sail through Congress. I don't know how many um, sponsors the Senate uh, companion had, but then it came to a screeching halt because it was scored, which means the forecast for how much it would cost, it was gonna be about 10 billion. And I won't go into why that is here, but it kind of came to a screeching halt. Then you had CMS come forward with three regulations 
late last year in December that touched on MA and prior authorization. Only one has been finalized. And, and, but that bill in Congress has not been reintroduced. And here it is, you know, mid-August. Mid so we had so much momentum to kind of put some controls on MA. But the story's not over. Um, I, all that issue is going to come back. Something's going to get over the finish line because there's more and more stories now in the, me, in the trade press and the media. MA is costing more than fee for service, and it's not supposed to. Right. Um, it, it was meant to be a cost saving uh, mechanism as well as a quality uh, improvement. So uh, it, it, it has a lot of favor in Congress, but these stories, these real, I'll call them reality stories, because we all know the reality, it's, it's, they're coming to the surface. So there's going to be more activity. This is a big area for activity, and the Medicare Advantage lobby is kind of girding themselves for it. Um, so this is a stay-tuned issue, but there's, they're, on their, they're on their heels now. Great. Well, Cynthia, thank, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate the insight into advocacy and Advion and everything that, that Advion is working on in our on our behalf as therapists in the field and as and as healthcare workers, because the work that we do is so incredibly important for the seniors that we serve. Um, I've always considered it a, a blessing and an honor and a calling to to serve this population. So to have Someone like you leading the charge for that advocacy um, is is pretty awesome. So thank you for your time today. Thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about advocacy. As you can tell, um, I enjoy it. it. I based my career around it. I really take a lot of joy in helping people get up to the hill and, and have their voice heard. So this was a wonderful opportunity to be with you in Functional Pathways today. Thank you for the time. Excellent. Thanks, Cynthia.